0: Oh, bless the Lord at all times, and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Holy Father, We thank you that your providence extends to every detail of our life. Your son said the hairs on our head are numbered, that not even a small little sparrow can fall to the ground apart from your notice. And yet how much more important are we than they? Thank you, Father, for loving us with an everlasting love. Thank you that when you saved us, you committed to form Jesus in us, help us to cooperate by your spirit to walk in him to look to him, to give us the strength and the change of mind that will change our behavior. Thank you today for your word. You call it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. As we open it, we come with a deep sense of dependence. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for sending the Spirit, just as you promised, that he will be our teacher and help us to see what is here today, not just so that we will grasp knowledge, but that our lives might be changed. So take these truths. Help me today to rightly divide them. Please come and give me the unction and the filling of the Spirit, that by your Spirit I might lift up Jesus, and I ask it in his holy name. Amen. Take God's Word this morning. Would you turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 6, as we continue our study on the four horsemen of the Apocalypse. In the Bible, horses are often mentioned with biblical prophecy and with judgment from God over 300 times in Scripture, horses and horsemen are mentioned. But I suppose the most famous of all the horses are these four that we've been studying. Now, certainly, horses are magnificent creatures, but these four horses described in this chapter of Scripture are anything but beautiful, beautiful they bring some of the most dreadful, horrible judgments the world has yet to see. And many of the great painters since the early centuries of Christianity have tried to picture the destruction and the judgments that they will bring. We have seen these four riders are still in the future, but often the Bible teaches that coming events will cast their shadows before they the events happen. And these events remind us of just what God is doing and how He's preparing this world. It sounds like you found it. We want to begin in Revelation chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice of thunder, Come, I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand and i heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and 3 quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine when the lamb broke the fourth seal i heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying come i looked and behold an ashen horse and he who sat on it had the name death and hades was following with him authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, let me bring you into the immediate context. God gave us the outline in Revelation 1.19. He told John to write about the things he had seen, and so he does that, reminds us of that in Revelation chapter 1 where we have a picture of the glorified Christ. He tells him to write about the things that are, and we see that in chapters 2 and 3 where he writes of seven real literal churches that were in existence in the first century when he wrote this book around 95 A.D. But then he asks him to write about the things after these things, in the future, after the church age is over, a door is opened up in heaven, and we saw that open door in Revelation 4 and verse 1. And God brings the church up, and we saw that church the body of Christ represented by the 24 elders. And in chapter four, they're praying and praising God around his throne. And in chapter five, we saw God the Father hand the scroll to God the Son, the title deed of the earth, which he will break open and claim for himself that which he bought at his cross. Now, when we open the first four seals, Jesus summons in essence these four riders on a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and today we will look at the ashen horse. They come like a storm, four ghoulish, gruesome, ghastly riders who will bring some awful judgments that will come upon this world that the world has yet to see. This is in the future, and a storm begins. And this storm, before we're done with this chapter, will be called the wrath of the Lamb. Let's review for a moment. Look at verse 1 of this chapter. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, with a loud voice of thunder, Come, I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. We discovered that this was the Antichrist. This is the one mentioned in Daniel 9 that gives us the schematic for the book of Revelation. There he's called the prince who is to come. We learn that he will make a firm covenant with Israel to protect her from her enemies. So his career begins as a peacemaker. We discover that he comes as a man of peace and so he's pictured in these verses as having a bow but with no arrows. It implies that he will conquer the world without bloodshed. He will accomplish this, I'm sure, by providing answers to the problems that the world will be facing. He comes on a white horse, just like the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus in Revelation 19, comes on a white horse. And that does not surprise us because Satan is the great imitator. He likes to come in the place of Christ. He disguises himself as an angel of light. And so this man is a great deceiver. We call him most popularly by the name that John gives him in his first epistle, Antichrist. There's over 30 titles Given for this man, the most common title in the Revelation, he's called the beast. But the word anti in Greek can mean instead of or against. Well, the former is largely in view. This one comes in the place of Christ and he gives solutions to the world. And they will no doubt embrace what he says. How do I know that? Because the Bible teaches it. The world will fall at this man's feet. The world will give him allegiance. The world will believe his explanations, maybe beginning with why millions of born-again evangelical Christians are gone. He'll come with a plan to bring peace to this world. And when he comes, the people of this world will honor him. When he comes, they will see him as a savior. They will be desperate for answers. And yet they have rejected God's holy son and they will, they will embrace this imposter. And he's such a great imposter, That even a few commentaries think that this is Jesus riding on the white horse and they confuse him with Christ in Revelation 19. But I went through a number of distinct differences. Between the rider in Revelation 19 and this rider, Jesus is opening the seven seal scrolls. He's letting these riders be released. This is not Christ. He's commanding these riders to go. If this were Christ, he would be in terrible, terrible company. And so he comes with great deception. He comes as a man of peace but he also comes as a man of power. The Scripture says in verse 2, he went out conquering and to conquer. And the leaders of this world will give their allegiance to him. In some of the New Testament texts, the Bible says he comes with signs and powers and wonders. And the world will embrace this imposter. They've denied that right to the king of kings. They've denied that right to the savior of men. They've denied that right to the son of God, but they will give that right to this child of hell. He comes as a man of peace. He comes as a man of power, but he also comes as a man of pretense. He is a great deceiver. He portrays himself to be one kind of person when in reality he is very, very different. I mean, we've almost been programmed to receive the man on the white horse with the white hat as the good guy, but this is the most evil dictatorial leader the world has yet to see and will ever see. And so with the first command, the first horseman is ordered to come. In God's perfect timing, we're to see God's timing all the way through the revelation that God is in control, that God is sovereign. And so verse 3 says, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And now once again, the second horseman is ordered and he comes again under God's command, under God's sovereign control. Verse 4 says, and another, a red horse went out. To him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. This is when it turns really ugly. Antichrist initially comes with a plan of peace, but that peace treaty is quickly exchanged for a sword. Initially, just before war breaks out, the world will be saying peace and safety. They'll say, we have our man. We have our Savior. Everything is wonderful. And we have a new sense of security that we've always wanted. And he will have convinced the world that he is that man. But Paul tells us while they are saying peace and safety, suddenly, suddenly is actually the first word in that section of that verse in First Thessalonians. It happens so quick. Suddenly, destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. I believe that the nations of this world are unknowingly, or maybe some knowingly, preparing for such a leader. There's a push for a world economy. There's a push for a global unity, for a one-world kind of government. But when this initial false sense of security comes, it's going to be followed by the wrath of the Lamb. Remember, the church has been taken up. The door in heaven has been opened. And so beginning in chapter 4 all the way through the end of the book, we will see scores of Jewish terms. The Lamb of God, that's a Passover term. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, that's a very Jewish term. And so we read in verse four and another, a red horse went out to him who sat on it. It was granted notice to take peace from the earth. It was granted again, God's sovereignty. It was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. Now the color of this horse perfectly fits what this rider does. God doesn't just pull these colors out of the air. There's uh, several words in Koine Greek for red, but God chooses the word poros, and it's the word red that is typically associated with destruction and violence. It's actually the same word that is used to modify the red dragon in Revelation 12, who of course is the devil himself. It's a picture of the wanton bloodshed, the fiery red color of blood that is going to come across the planet. He comes on this blood red horse and the Bible says here, a great sword was given to him. Great to underscore the extent of the warfare, probably some weapon of mass destruction. And the scripture says that this man was permitted to take peace from the earth. Not peace from Israel, not peace from the Roman empire, but peace, ectes ges, Peace from the earth. God is going to bring something that is worldwide in nature. We've had some so-called world wars, but they really, in the true sense, were not world wars. This will be a world war because it is going to encompass the entire planet. The Bible says that it was granted to him that men would slay one another. And he uses the word slay. It's a term of brutality of someone who slaughters or butchers another person. Peace is taken from the earth. This is a war of an incredible magnitude. He who sat was permitted to take peace from the earth. He's given permission, like the man on the white horse. The man on the red horse is permitted. He's granted certain freedoms. God only allows these riders to do what he allows them to do. They are corralled in God's sovereign fence. And listen, this uh, ordained corral is still going to bring incredible destruction. When the light of the world is removed, when the church is taken out, and one of the functions of light is to dispel darkness, when the church is gone, when the salt of the earth, is removed and the function of salt is to preserve when the church that's still even in its weakness today preserves righteousness when the last vestige of good is gone and when the restrainer a term used to describe the holy spirit when he lifts his hand of authority you're going to see human nature unfold in a way like you've never seen it before jesus said nation will rise against nation. The word nation is the word ethnoi or ethnos in the singular. It refers to ethnicities. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. That refers to geopolitical boundaries, different countries. It's going to be a war that will include race wars and class wars and country wars and religious wars. There's going to be wars across the planet. And add to the fact that there will be no fathers and no churches that will be praying for their soldiers, no mothers on their knees, no chaplains out in the foxholes pleading with soldiers to get right with God, because as we will see, coming to the seventh chapter, nearly as fast as people are saved, they are executed for their faith. Now in verse 5, we meet the horsemen on the black horse. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. The third seal is broken, and another rider makes his appearance. And as this slide reminds us, you can see that these first three horsemen come in the first half of the tribulation. There's a prophecy given in Daniel 9. It serves really as a schematic along with other chapters in Daniel for the whole book of Revelation. That's why we went chapter by chapter and verse by verse through Daniel before we preached the revelation. And so Daniel gives us 70 week prophecy in the first 69 weeks are fulfilled from a decree that goes out by a king to rebuild the city and the walls of Jerusalem, and it brings us to what's called Palm Sunday. Jesus said, this was your day. It was the very day that the prophets wrote of. It's an incredible prophecy, but then there is a space of time between the 69th week and the 70th week because of Israel's rejection of her Messiah, and so right now, God is building his church. The church was not in the Old Testament. Jesus said, I will build my church. The church age is unfolding, but the church age will end, and then the clock will begin ticking again for the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, just as the book of Revelation teaches, it is precisely seven years long. And just as Revelation, just as Jesus, just as Daniel taught, it's divided into two equal halves of twelve hundred and sixty days, forty-two months, or three and a half years. And so these four horsemen, these seal judgments, all happen in the first three and a half years. Now this man comes on a black horse in black historically and biblically, is a color of mourning. When people go to a funeral today, they don't dress up in their bright white clothes. They come typically in dark clothes as an expression of mourning and sadness for those whom they are seeking to console. That's true in the Jewish mind, but it's beyond just death. It is also used of mourning in the Scripture of someone who's mourning because of trouble that has come upon them as a people. And very often that trouble that is accompanied with famine. And I gave you many examples. Let me give you just a few again to refresh your memory. Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 14 said this, That which came as the word of the, of the Lord to Jeremiah in regard to the drought. Judah mourns, and her gates languish. They, meaning the gates that languish, they sit on the ground in mourning. The Hebrew Bible reads, the gates, or they, uh, are, are black on the land. Now, that doesn't mean anything to us to say the gates are black on the land. That's a Hebrew idiom. There's a lot of idioms in the Bible, just like there are in different cultures. In the South, sometimes we use the idiom, oh, he's between a rock and a hard place. Now, if you're from up north, that doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot to you, but from the south, you know exactly what it means. So idioms need to be defined. And so very often in the Bible, when there's a Hebrew idiom that's used, if we don't use it in our culture, then the translators will interpret the idiom. And so the King James doesn't really interpret it, it just translates it. It says, the gates are black onto the ground. In other words, it's saying the people who are in public are dejected. They mourn. They put on black on account of this national distress. And then Jeremiah describes this distress. Their nobles have sent their servants for water. They have come to the cisterns and found no water. They have returned with their vessels empty. They have been put to shame and humiliated, and they cover their heads because the ground is cracked. For there has been no rain on the land. The farmers have been put to shame. They have covered their heads. So understand, God is not just pulling these colors out of the air. White, red, black are each given with a particular reason. And black is often the color for mourning in Scripture that is associated with famine. Another example, Lamentations. Jeremiah, the crying prophet, wrote, The tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. The little one asks for bread, but no one breaks it for them. And then in describing this awful lament, he said, literally, our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. In other words, the color was gone. Their good health had dissolved. Another example, the prophet Joel. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale again the king james just interprets without translating uh excuse me translates without interpreting and it follows virtually the hebrew text before their faces the people shall be much pained all their faces gather blackness what does that mean well it means a lot to a jewish person Very often in Scripture, black is beautiful, like in the Song of Solomon. But sometimes black is a sign of mourning that comes from famine. And so God uses the black horse to describe famine. But even if you hadn't studied the Old Testament, and remember, I told you that as you read the Revelation, one of the reasons it's difficult for some to understand is because 300 of the 404 verses come out of the Old Testament without ever quoting the specific book. So there's allusions all the way through Revelation to the Old Testament. But many times you can figure it out just from the context. Listen to the next verse in Revelation. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, so you know from what happens that this black horse is going to be associated with famine. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. Now, very clearly, it's not by accident The black horse follows a red horse because famine invariably follows war like night follows day. Again, we're going to discover that this is the precise order that Jesus gave of the events in the Olivet Discourse. And I'll show you that in a few moments. So this rider comes on a black horse with a pair of scales in his hands. That's a reminder to us that during the tribulation period, there will be severe shortages, that food will need to be rationed. Now, we know very little of that in our day, especially in America. Even in America, if you're poor and the cupboards are empty, you can usually go somewhere in any given day to get a good meal to fill your belly. But after the white horse, after the red horse... Famine is going to come upon the earth. Millions and millions of people are going to die from hunger. And with inadequate diet comes disease and despair and death. And we know little of that. But when he broke this third seal, the Bible says that this rider on the black horse had a pale, pair of scales in his hand. He has some good old-fashioned scales, something we don't use much anymore. And notice what this rider is saying. Verse 6, and I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, the Greek word here for quart or measure in some of your Bibles represents the size of enough milled wheat in the first century to bake a single loaf of bread. And it would take a denarius which in the first century was the average full-day pay for for a 10-hour day, it would take a denarius to be able to buy at this time just a single loaf of bread. So think about that. Now, the average family in America, 2.4, and the birth rate according to our government last week says continues to drop, is small compared to other countries of the world. The Middle East, where it's 7.5, in Africa, where it's 5.6. But think about it. A man works hard all day. He can buy one loaf of bread, and it needs to feed not only him, but the whole family. A quart of wheat for a denarius, or he says, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Wheat is the food from which most bread was made. Unless you were poor, you used barley. Barley was the grain that was used typically to feed the animals. And so in modern terms, a man will work hard all day. At the end of the day, there's just enough food for one person. So assuming you still have some care for your family, instead of buying one loaf, you buy three loaves of barley, or maybe you buy a box of saltine crackers, to put it in modern terms. But don't miss this image. A man is going to work all day to have just enough good food for one person or he can buy enough food that would feed an animal for three. Ladies and gentlemen, this is an awful time. And think about those people who cannot work, who are unable to work. Probably they will starve to death. And the fact that it will take a day's wages to buy such a small amount of food reminds us of the soaring prices that will be in place. The problem of hunger is going to be awful. Verse 6, he then adds... And do not damage the oil and the wine. That's an interesting, explicit instruction that God gives to this writer. Do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, unlike wheat and barley that represent the necessities of life, at this time in human history, the oil and the wine represent the luxuries of life. It's the luxuries of the rich. And so the poor will get by with just enough bread, but there will be some who will have oil and wine. I don't know if that will be countries like America and other parts of the world will have less or will be certain communities. Uh, Rich is a relative term I recognize, but comparatively speaking, everyone in America compared to the rest of the world is rich. But the point here is you're going to see luxury and poverty existing side by side. Remember Jesus when four of his disciples approached him on one occasion, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he sat them there on the Mount of Olives, which is kind of ground zero. It's the mountain of which he ascended into heaven. It's the mountain to which he will literally physically come again. And he reminds us, really, of both of these truths. We will see it, we'll study it further later on, that there will be famine and plenty existing side by side. Jesus, for instance, in likening his return from heaven for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. Two unequal conditions of famine that he mentions earlier in that chapter, and plenty existing side by side. Now, unlike the great famine of 1315 that affected uh, parts of Europe where the wealthy feasted and the masses starved, this famine will be so widespread and allowing the luxury items to remain God is going to bring a judgment on the rich. Think about this for a moment. Think your way through this. All the godly rich, and there are many godly rich people, they'll all be gone. They will be raptured. And so the only rich that are left are the selfish, self-centered rich. And can you imagine what people will do to some of those folks? It will be a built-in judgment itself on them. Look what's happening in Venezuela. You know, we're consumed with... A lot of nonsense in the news, but some of the real tragedy that's going on from day to day, like the hunger in Venezuela and people are slitting each other's throats to get a meal. This is going to happen in a widespread way. There's going to be global turmoil. And you can see how maybe this famine that will come through this rider will actually pave the way for further worldwide control that the antichrist is going to bring as this seven-year period progresses. There's going to come a time when the Bible says in He Revelation 13:16, the antichrist and he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And many people who are hungry will gladly take that mark. Paul said of unbelievers, their God is their belly. You know, some people live for food. Food is an idol for some people. And when you're hungry, it will become an idol for many people. And people will be willing to take the mark of the beast, 666, in order to be able to buy or sell. Now, Christ, who is the bread of life, He is going to have an imposter who will come in his place, the Antichrist, a counterfeit bread of Christ, who people will serve. So what does this prophecy concerning the rider on the black horse really tell us? It tells us that this will be a time of limited productivity, and it will be a time of economic deprivation. This is not the war horse. This is the famine horse, and the two are closely connected. It's not by accident that when a nation goes to war, many of the men who would work in the fields are not there to work. And we felt just a small pinch of that in the Second World War, as my parents would tell me of the ration coupons they would have. I want to tell you, it's going to be worldwide. There is going to be limited productivity, there's going to be economic deprivation, and the transportation that would be given priority to transport food from one state from one place to another is going to be used to transport weaponry to defend our nation. This is just the first of the first three horsemen, beginning now in verse 7, and I did that by way of review, and I hope you are getting it. I want you to be able to think your way all the way through the book of Revelation. Why do I want you to know this book so well? Well, you should know the whole Scripture well, but God gives a unique blessing in this book alone for those who will hear and heed and apply this book, they will be blessed. God doesn't do that with any other book in the New Testament but this book, and so you would be wise to really get a hold on this So beginning now in verse 7, the fourth seal is is broken. And so Jesus unrolls the scroll a little bit further. First, we saw the white horse of deception bringing the Antichrist himself. He was followed by the red horse of destruction bringing bloody war across the planet. The first real world war followed by the black horse of deprivation and destitution bringing famine. Now we come to the pale horse of devastation. When this rider is loose, John first tells us about the breadth of the devastation that he brings. So let's think about the breadth of the devastation he brings. In describing the breadth of the devastation that he carries, different realities are brought out concerning this rider. The first concerns the announcement of devastation. The announcement. Notice now one of the living creatures in verse seven. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come. Now the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, carefully breaks the fourth seal and he unrolls this scroll just a little bit further. And at the same moment, the fourth of God's living creatures, we've studied them. These living creatures are a class of angels, special angels. They are almost perfectly parallel to the cherubim that we studied in Ezekiel's prophecy. He says to the fourth rider, come. Now, I hope you remember these four living creatures. I know the old King James says the fourth beast, but the word beast had a different connotation in the 17th century. This is the word "zoa." We get our word zoology, the study of life. This is a zoa angel. This is a living creature. And so he announces, come. The announcement is given. Again, Satan cannot move. Judgments cannot come until God permits it. Now, beyond the announcement, let's think about for just a moment about the color of the devastation, the color of the devastation. At the command of one of God's servants, John tells us, I looked and behold, an ashen horse. Now, the word ashen is the Greek word chloros, and it's used to describe a yellow screen or a pale gray color in literature both in and outside of the Bible. Uh, The Greek scholar Moffat describes it uh, as the color of a bloodless corpse. And so ashen in uh, extra biblical Greek, Homer uses this same Greek word chloros to describe someone who's blanched frightened with fear, and the color kind of goes out of their face. Uh, the Chloros horse, the Net Bible renders it the pale green horse. It's the color of chlorine gas. And of course, one of the famous American manufacturers of bleach is called Clorox. You spill a little Clorox on your clothes, and the color goes out. If you really want to get a picture, if you see a corpse that has been there for several hours before the uh, people fix it all up and put the makeup on it and everything else, you get a good color of this. This is the color of death. Now, beyond the color of the devastation, let's think about the name of the devastation, the name that is given. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, And he who sat on it had the name Death. The rider of this fourth horse is called Death. And what an appropriate name that God will give him because of the devastation that he brings. There's a chain reaction that is taking place here. The first seal releases the Antichrist on the white horse. After the Antichrist, the second seal is broken and the rider on the red horse comes. And after that, the famine on the black horse. And now comes after the famine... Death on this ashen horse. And of course, history documents that very often after a war has been completed, sometimes more people die as a result of the consequences of the war than during the war itself. Epidemics break out. But listen, listen to what he says here. I looked and behold an ashen horse, John testifies, and he who sat on it had the name death. Some of you have been to that famous art museum in London where some men in the 1400s and the 14th century over uh, 600 years ago wove together all these tapestries, 472 feet long. It's breathtaking. And what they did was they read the sixth chapter of the Revelation. And then they wove these tapestries together and then sewed them all together, and it's 472 feet long, picturing the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But maybe, I think, one of the most chilling renditions, people have been drawing these horses for centuries, I mean... The four horsemen have become an idiom in English to describe some terrible war or some terrible tragedy. It is just so famous, and so it's often painted. But maybe the most famous one was done by Fujita, a Japanese artist who survived Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Here's a picture of his work. He painted a man's full skeleton, grinning rather fiendishly, while riding this ashen horse over a field of death. Now remember... It was never, ever God's intention for death to come into the world. The Bible says sin entered into the world and death through sin. And of course, a lot of evangelicals have abandoned that truth. Bruce Walke, a few years ago, a Hebrew scholar, so-called evangelical, now adopts theistic evolution like many local evangelical churches because we want to warm up to the world and buddy-buddy with them. And so now we have death for millions and millions of years before God even creates man. But God is very clear that death enters into the world through sin. There was no death before sin came into the world. It's a byproduct of sin. Matt led us today in that great hymn, Death, Where Is Your Victory? I was writing down the road that we live on, my wife and I, some months ago, and we'd been up and down that road for 27 years, and it just caught my eye with her, and I, there's a graveyard there. I've never seen that before. And we kind of pulled up in that abandoned trailer park, and, and there was a graveyard. And some of the graves went back to the 1920s, and some of them went back to just the last year. And one of the gravestones caught my attention It just had a question on it. Oh, death, where is your victory? God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Notice what he says. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name death, and Hades was following him. Now, while we're here, let's define some terms because you're all theologians. You either have a stinking rotten theology or a good biblical theology, and I want you to have a good biblical theology. So let's define some terms, okay? First, uh, some terms that relate to judgment for the lost, and then we'll look at some terms as they relate to the saved. In the scriptures, these are some of the terms that God uses to describe the place of judgment for those who are lost. Sheol, uh Hades. Gehenna, which is translated hell in the New Testament. The Greek word is Gehenna. The lake of fire, the second death, and eternal punishment. Those are some of the major terms that God uses to describe eternal retribution. Here's some of the names that God uses to describe the blessings that come on the saved at death. Sheol, same term, interestingly. We'll talk about that in a moment. Paradise, Abraham's bosom. The third heaven, heaven itself, by itself, uh, home, the father's house, and the new Jerusalem. Now, in the Hebrew scriptures, in the section that we refer to as the Old Testament, they call it the Tanakh, Sheol is a term common to both lists that can be used to describe the place where a believer goes or where an unbeliever goes, and context determines what you have in view. Because as you study the Old Testament and the New Testament that sheds more light on it, you discover that Sheol actually has two compartments to it. What we would call righteous Sheol, where a believer went, and unrighteous Sheol, where an unbeliever went, and he continues to go. Uh, Let me give you some example. First of unrighteous Sheol. Remember when they were uh, leaving Egypt and they were out in the wilderness for 40 years and Moses was leading the people and there was a rebellion led by a name a guy named Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And, and they instituted this rebellion. And so Moses basically, he drew a line in the sand. He said, you've got to choose sides. Let me read a portion of the event, number 16. Moses said... By this you shall know that the Lord, that is Yahweh, has sent me to do all these deeds. For this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. Now, these men are unbelievers. One of them is mentioned in the Acts of the Apostates in the book of Jude, verse 11, and he's still in this place called Sheol. He's still in a place of eternal retribution. Now, the King James, to help you, they don't, in this case, translate as they much interpret but to help us sometimes in the King James when unrighteous sheol is in view the place where an unbeliever dies instead of translating it sheol they translate it hell let me give you an example in proverbs 15:24 solomon writes the way of life winds upward for the wise that he may turn away from Hell below, And the word hell there is the word Sheol, and so most English translations just say Sheol. But because it's dealing with an unbeliever, and it's referring to unrighteous Sheol, the writers of the King James and New King James render it hell. Uh, By contrast, righteous Sheol is the place where a believer dies. Remember Jacob, one of the progenitors of the nation of Israel who had 12 sons, who in turn formed the 12 tribes of the nation Israel? Uh, he was told by his other sons that Joseph was dead, eaten by an animal. And in reality, he is, uh, becomes, of course, the prime minister of Egypt. In Genesis 37, we're told, Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So, he, so his father wept for him, for Joseph. Now, Jacob was not going, obviously, to the Sheol of the unrighteous. He was a believer. Other passages remind us that he's in heaven with Abraham. He's in that city that God has prepared. So he didn't go to unrighteous Sheol. He went to righteous Sheol. Now, I raise this particular text for a reason, because sometimes you will hear pastors and even theologues very sloppily just say, well, Sheol is the place of the grave. It's the place where the body is placed. No, that's not accurate. Sheol best describes the place where the soul goes. Think about this for just a moment. He says, I am going to go and meet Joseph and Sheol. What, his body in the place of a grave? He's under the impression that his body had been eaten by animals, that there was nothing to bury. He was looking forward to being reunited with Joseph as a believer. Now, the word rendered grave in some translations is the Hebrew word sheol, and it describes the place that the soul goes at death. Again, think your way through this. Later on, Genesis chapter 50, Jacob has died, and we're told that he's mummified. We read in 50 in verse 1, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, so the physicians embalmed Israel. That's his name, Israel or Jacob. That's what God's people do with those who want to carefully follow the Scripture. They bury their loved ones. Now, he's in Egypt, so it's a little more involved process. He mummifies him. But he doesn't burn him in a furnace. Now, look, if you want to burn your loved one in a furnace, you're welcome to do that. And I will happily serve you, and I won't bring it up at your funeral, all right? And don't think you've got in that little box some special box of ashes of Uncle Ed. Uncle Ed was burned in the same furnace as Aunt Sally and Martha and a hundred other people. You think they go in there and wipe out every single ash from the previous guy? I don't know how many people you got in your little box, but it's not just Uncle Ed. I'm just dealing with you truthfully. But God's people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rebecca, Sarah, Ananias, Sapphira, John the Baptist, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul assumes you bury your loved ones. I just did a funeral for a couple. Audrey and I pray for them almost every day. They lost their 13 month old little baby. You think they're going to take that little precious girl and burn her in a furnace? Into a piece of ash? Not in your life precious little body was laid in a grave. They kiss that little girl just like Joseph kisses his daddy who's now dead. When God himself does a funeral, the last chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, he, Yahweh, buries Moses. God gave you a pattern. And if you want to do it God's way and you want some punch to your funeral, don't have a picture down here or even a little box, have a real casket with a real person. It will be your last will and testament to reach some of your loved ones and friends and neighbors who only gather for marriages and funerals. And if the pastor is preaching the word of God, you might win them to Jesus. Now, 40 days were required for it to be mummified. For such is the period required for embalming, and the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. So there's 40 days for the embalming process, and then another 30 days to mourn. Beyond those 70 days, Pharaoh grants Joseph traveling mercies to take his daddy back to the land of Canaan, to the promised land where he wants to be buried. Now, don't miss this in chapter 49. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he brings them all, blesses them, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. I love that. When you add the 70 days and the time it took then to travel to Canaan, another seven days to mourn there in Canaan, obviously several months had gone by. But here's Jacob, he's in his deathbed. He pulls the covers up. Pulls his feet under the cover, smiles in the face of the Lord, and the Bible says he was gathered to his people. What people? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. In New Testament theology, we'd say he went home to be with the Lord. Now please do not miss that. He was gathered to his people. He had been dead for two months when he's buried. But the moment he died, he was gathered to his people. He breathed his last. The Hebrew says he, he yielded up his spirit. Ten weeks after he had died, he's buried understand Sheol does not underscore so much the place where the body is placed as it does where the soul goes. And in distinguishing righteous Sheol from unrighteous Sheol, Jesus in Luke 16 tells a parable. Maybe it's not a parable. If it is a parable, it's the only parable with a name in it, but it changes nothing. Now, the poor man died and was carried away to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried in Hades, very conscious. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. When you come into the New Testament, because it's written in Greek, they take the word Sheol, and they don't translate it Sheol. They translate it, that's the Hebrew, they translate it with the Greek word, Hades. If you read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint, every time Sheol appears, they render it Hades. And so here Jesus is distinguishing a rich man who dies and goes to Hades, Sheol, a place of torment, conscious torment, where he's very aware, where he has memory even of his family. And he goes to Sheol where The poor man goes to Abraham's bosom and one doesn't go to heaven and the other hell because they're rich or poor, but because one's a believer and the other is an unbeliever. And so when a lost man dies today, he goes to Sheol or Hades. Hades is still a real place. But on this side of Calvary, righteous Hades, righteous Sheol, also called Abraham's bosom, no longer exists. Today when you die, the moment you die, you go home to be with the Lord in a place that is given many terms in Scripture. Paul says, for instance, we're of good courage I say and prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Heaven is called, among other things, a home to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Paul uses that same word, paradasis, to describe what happened to him on that occasion. He says, I was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. When he writes to the Philippians, he says, For me to live is Christ, to die is not a loss, because we don't sleep in a grave unconsciously. Only your body is placed in the grave. To die is gain, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be where? With Christ, for that is far much better. And so Sheol in Hebrew Hades in Greek originally has two compartments, unrighteous Sheol for the lost and righteous Sheol for the saved, also known as Abraham's bosom. And someday Sheol or Hades that exists right now, if someone dies and they go to Hades or Sheol unrighteous, this conscious place of tournament, someday God is going to take Hades and he's going to cast it into Gehenna and in the lake of fire. Forever and ever and ever. We'll study that when we come to Revelation 20. So hold on. So within that biblical framework, I want you to understand what's going on here in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 8. I looked and behold an ashen horse and he who sat on it had the name Death and Hades was following with him. Since this is the New Testament, then you know that Hades here is a reference only to unrighteous Sheol or unrighteous Hades, the place where Unbelievers go. And so he's reminding us that death is followed with Hades, that death in Hades was following with him. God is simply saying it's death that claims the body, but it is Hades, it is Sheol that claims the soul, that you cannot crawl up into some grave and be buried with a bunch of dirt and somehow hide from God Almighty. God wants you to know that death, physical death, does not end at all because Hades follows death. You were made to live forever. Your soul will be here in existence. Long after the sun and the moon and the stars are gone, you will live forever and ever and ever, endless, timeless, eternally, in a place that God wants you to go called heaven, the Father's house the New Jerusalem, paradise, home, or into the lake of fire, Gehenna. So that's the name of the devastation. Still with me? All right. I'm almost done. Let's think about the extent of the devastation. Verse 8. I looked... Behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them. Notice over a fourth of the earth. Please note. Authority was given to them. Like Satan, he could only do to Job what God allowed. This rider only can do what God allows him to do. And like with the other riders, this horse too is on a leash, and God has the end of the leash, In either case, when he comes, he is given permission, the Bible says here, to destroy a fourth of the earth. Now, if that were to happen in the next seven years, there's 7.5 billion people on the earth. That means that 1,875,000,000 will die when this rider comes. By the way, there has never, ever been any kind of plague or pestilence in the history of humanity that has ever taken out a fourth of the planet. That's why the preterist view that says this is all history, it all happened on before 70 AD, that's why the amillennials who spiritualizes God's word, who says the church is the new Israel, that God's done with the Jewish people, which is planting seeds of anti-Semitism in our world, that's why they are so wrong, because they have to just write off and spiritualize the numbers that God gives in this time. There's never been a war in human history that has even come close to taking these kinds of numbers. Now, these people are confirmed unbelievers. And they go to a place of judgment. Their death is followed by Hades. And by the way, those who are left behind to witness it, this is an expression of God's goodness. He doesn't wipe out the planet all at once. He takes seven years to bring these judgments. Why? Because it's his final wake-up call. God sees the long view that as bad as what we're going to study in the tribulation, it won't even compare to what we're going to study in Revelation chapter 20. Hell is so awful, so terrible. But remember, the devil is God's devil, as Luther used to say. This writer can only do what God allows, and God is allowing him to do what he does to get a the attention of the remaining people who still have a chance to call upon Jesus in faith. Remember, God is over it all. Jesus said in the opening verses, he has the keys of death and Hades. Now, very quickly, beyond the breath of the devastation that this writer brings, God wants here in the remaining section... To help us to understand the brutality of the devastation that he leaves. And this brutality called death comes in four ways. The first comes by sword. First, death comes by the sword. Again in verse 8, he was given permission to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword. This is a word not referring to war, but to murder. It refers to the deadliest assault that one human can bring upon another human being, where people will murder one another with no regard for life. And I imagine, especially when there's widespread famine, people will do anything to get food. On a bad weekend in Chicago, on a bad month of Chicago, this pales. We're talking about millions and millions of murders across the planet. God hates murder, whether it's in the womb or outside of the womb. He hates the taking of innocent life. It breaks the heart of God to see people murdered in His own image. So death comes by the sword. Notice too, death comes by famine. So here's another famine that God is going to allow. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine. Beyond the sword, death comes with famine. Widespread starvation. Now, we've all seen those pictures of little children with their bloated bellies and their skinny little arms and legs and their protruding eyes. And it is rather still rare in our world, but not in this coming world. Over a billion people are going to die and many are going to come through starvation. Remember, 25% of the earth's population, that's equal to the entire number of people living in China and the United States are going to die during this time. Notice also death comes to the world by pestilence. Verse 8, authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, and with pestilence. Though not reflected in most English Bibles, the word pestilence is actually the name of the writer. It's the word thanatos. We get our English word directly from it. Thanatology is the study of death. This death comes through death. Literally, the King James renders it that it calls death with death. Uh, but it's an idiom in Greek. And so we usually translate it plagues or pestilence. A pestilence or a plague is a pandemic that spreads rapidly, uh, and it often happens after dead bodies across the planet. When, when civilization begins to crumble when the civilization's defenses uh, against disease begin to wane, when there's no sanitation, when there's no safe drinking water, then diseases like typhoid and dysentery begin to spread like wildfire. And so literally, the Greek reads that men are dying with death. But notice finally, death comes to the world by the wild beasts. Authority was given to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and then he adds, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, I do not know what you think of when you think of wild beasts. Maybe you think of lions and tigers and bears. Oh, no, you know. Um, I don't know what you think of, but actually the word that shoes, it's one word in Greek, can refer to an animal as small as a rat. In fact, during the 1340s, 25 million people lost their life in Europe through rat fleas, uh, there's over 100 species of rats, I'm told. They can multiply such that Mr. and Mrs. Rat can produce five, eight, up to 10 litters of rats in one year, depending on their species. Now, God does not specify how the death will come except to say here, by wild beasts. And certainly, if God wants to use normal everyday animals, he can. God can control the brain of a little animal and alter it. He controlled the brain of a little fish such that that fish swallowed a stater, and Peter could go throw his line in the in the sea of Galilee and the first fish that came up had enough money to pay Jesus' and his tax. He can control the uh, brain of a little donkey where Jesus gets on a donkey as he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey that had never been ridden before. But it doesn't act like a wild bronco because it's under Christ's control. In another occasion, he makes a donkey literally speak English. On another occasion, during the night of his betrayal, he has a cock crow at just the right time to bring to Peter's memory a prophecy he had made. I don't know what God will use. He may use, Rick, you're a little Fido. And that little dog may turn on you. I hope you're not here for that time, Rick. Are you going to be here? He says, no, he says, no, all right, listen, I know it's politically correct to worship mother nature, but PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals are going to realize that they are not going to be able to do anything to help themselves. We're running out of time, but put out in the margin, would you, Ezekiel 14, 21 to 23, um, the book of Revelation, as I told you, is filled with references to the Old Testament. Let me read a couple of verses. How much worse will it be when I send my four terrible judgments? Listen to them. This is in Ezekiel's day. Sword, famine, wild animals, and plagues. Same four we just read in the Revelation. That's limited to Jerusalem. These four that are coming are gonna be across the planet. Then he gives them a hope word of hope, yet some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. They will come out to you, and when you see their behavior and their deeds, you will be consoled about the catastrophe I brought in Jerusalem for everything I brought on it, because you will know that it was not without reason that I have done anything which I have done in it, declares the Lord. It is not without reason. It is not without reason that God is letting this happen. It is a loving, passionate God still seeking and saving the lost. And a lot of people are going to die. But as we will see when we come to chapter 7, a lot of people are going to get saved. Now, I told you that there is a reason for the order of these horses. God prophesies these horses to come in this order and jesus spoke of the exact same thing in matthew chapter 24 do you remember it says and he was sitting on the mount of olives the disciples came to him privately tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age and if you've read the olivet discourse carefully you discover it perfectly parallels revelation chapter 6 and the chapters that will follow And of course, as you read the Old Testament, you discover that there's a time, it's called the Day of the Lord, it's never happened yet, a time of terrible horror upon the earth that will then follow with the King, the Messiah, sitting on David's throne. That's never happened. The governments of this world never rested on Jesus' shoulders, and yet at the birth of God's Son... Gabriel said, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Zephaniah speaking of this horrible day says, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Isaiah, in describing this coming day, uses a similar figure. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their faces is aflame. He says the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. That's never happened. It's going to happen. Thus, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. The birth pangs haven't happened yet, but they're going to happen. Here's a chart, maybe help you to think through it. First comes false messiahs, all that discourse, Matthew 24, Luke chapter 21, uh, Mark chapter 13 as well. You find the all that discourse listed in three places. The white horse of deception comes. There'll be wars and rumors of war. That's the red horse. There'll be famines. That's the black horse. There'll be death. That's the ashen horse. Think about it. Jesus said in 24, 5, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. With the church having been raptured, there'll be a void. Many false messiahs will come and one will come to the forefront. He went on to say, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of war. See to it that you're not frightened, for these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. That's fulfilled in the red horse, a time of unparalleled war, and it's so widespread, it's on everyone's lips, the rumor of another war. Then Jesus said, in various places there will be famine. That's the black horse of famine. And then he speaks of pestilence in Luke's gospel. He says, and there will be a great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines. It's exactly what we see here. And this all happens in the first half of the great tribulation. Now, just like a woman who goes into labor, the birth pangs increase in number and intensity. And you see that first the rider on the white horse, he comes with no arrows. Then the rider on the red horse, he comes with a single sword. Then the rider on the black horse, he comes with two means in which to bring death, economic collapse and famine. Then the rider on the ashen horse, he comes with four specific ways in which to kill. And then we haven't even reached the midpoint. Therefore, the midpoint, dead center of the seven years, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet, then look out, because then you will have the trumpet and the seal judgments. For then there will be a time of great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Friends, we haven't seen anything yet. Wait till we come to the trumpet and the bold judgments. You say, this is cruel. It's not cruel. It's called justice and mercy. God is bringing retribution on the unbelievers, and he's ringing the bell of those who are not so hard in heart yet that they might yet believe. The birth pangs haven't started yet. So you got a Hal Lindsey who writes a book, oh, look at all these earthquakes, and we had this many in this century and this many in this century, and interesting. But that's not, not the birth pangs. Now, is there significance in all these earthquakes and famines? And, yes, there is. How are they significant? Because it tells you the pregnancy has arrived and the water is ready to break. But it will break after the rapture of the church. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't want to be here for this time in human history. Jesus, without a word of exaggeration because he cannot lie, says it will be the worst time this world has ever known. And if you know that as a Christian, I hope you care about your loved ones and your neighbors and your friends and your co-workers, that you care enough to warn them that you care enough to sit through this sermon because you want to know God's truth and you want to engage in things that really matter in this life and not just get home to your football game this afternoon. These are important things. These are things that matter. And we would do well to heed God's Word. Father, thank You for what we've read this morning. Give us eyes to see it. Give us wills to respond to it. You've told us that we are to go and to seek and to save that which is lost. That is, you have been sent by the Father, so you have sent us. I pray today, Father, for someone here who is not sure that heaven is truly their home. Help them to realize that there's nothing they can do to earn it, that Jesus paid it all, and they owe everything to him. Help them in simple childlike faith to say, Jesus, save me. And help us as a church to care not just about ourselves, but about others, to reach out to those who are lost this week in any way that you would give us, to share Christ with them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.